0: Good morning, everyone, and I know it's January 9th, but I wasn't here last week, so I don't know the uh, expiration date on wishing people Happy New Year, but since I didn't get to see you last week, I'm taking advantage of this and saying Happy New Year to my church family, and welcome to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch. I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and whether you are with us in person or on the live stream, We are grateful that you have chosen to worship with us this morning, and it's our prayer as we lift up and exalt the name of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth that you enjoy, that you are edified, that we are built up, and we are transformed by the glory of God through the gospel. If you are a visitor with us this morning, we offer a warm welcome to you. We hope you got the visitor packet when you came in, and we would like to encourage all of you to fill out the uh, sign-in on the friendship pad. So if you're at the end of the row, get that started, pass that down to your friends next to you, and we'll go from there. Let me just highlight a couple of announcements before we enter into worship. We've been talking a lot about new beginnings, and they are here upon us. And so just highlighting a couple of different things going on uh, for this next Sunday. We will be starting up Sunday school again. And so, my wife will be teaching the elementary ages. We're blessed to have Harold Parker teaching the middle school and the high school youth. And then, for the adults, we're going to start with one class, kind of start small, build strong, so to speak. I think I've heard that in some circles. We're going to have one adult class that myself, Mark Stott, and Bill McCartney will be team teaching. And for that, we'll be going through a wonderful book that I had the opportunity to read about a year ago called Gentle and Lowly, written by a PCA pastor by the name of Dane Ortland, And don't rush out and buy them, because Crossway Publishers gave us 200 free copies. And so if you're a part of this Sunday School class, you get a copy of that book. We'll also, next Sunday, be installing the Women's Council. And then after the service, there'll be a visitor's luncheon. On the 23rd of January is our officer election. And I think you have the bios as an insert. Uh, in your bulletin. And then we will be installing those officers at the end of the month on January 30th. Now, let me highlight one very, very important thing as part of our new beginnings, and that is the reopening of our nursery, our youngest covenant members of our church. And we need your help. We would really like to have it be volunteer-led, a volunteer director, and volunteer uh, manning the nursery, which means we need two people in there during the Sunday school hour and two people in there during the worship hour. And so we need four people per Sunday. And the more people sign up, the fewer Sundays you have to do it. Can you imagine? Now, I can't do quick math. I, I need, you know, my friend Ken Johnson to help me with the math and stuff. Can you imagine if we had 100 people sign up? You'd only be doing it twice a year. You'd only be doing it. How's that for a vision? Where's Tommy? Is that a vision to present out there? We want 100 people to sign up and and stay with. What an unbelievably great opportunity to love and welcome and minister to our youngest Covenant members. And so uh, contact me, contact our education elder, Tommy Evans, or contact the office if you are interested in being a part of the nursery ministry as part of our Covenant family privileges that we have. So friends, now as Amy plays, let's prepare our hearts for worship this morning. What a beautiful picture, as God is our hiding place, that he surrounds us with love and praise. He's called us to worship him this morning, and our call to worship comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David said, "'Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty.'" For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted over as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Father, we do that. We give thanks to you. We humble our hearts and come before you, bowing before you, to praise your glorious name, to declare your glory as those who have been brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we invoke your presence to join with us that we may praise you, God of glory, God of power, God of majesty. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and sing our opening hymn of praise, How Firm a Foundation. seated. Oh, marinate in that, my friends, that soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. Yes, this life is full of dangers and troubles. We're on a wilderness journey on the way to the promised land. But listen to the promise that that hymn so beautifully points out. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. As Jesus said in his commission to his disciples, when he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him and that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, what was the promise? He said, behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Friends, let's continue to worship, lifting up our hearts as we confess our faith this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism. The first two questions, let us read this responsively. What is your only comfort in life and death? I am not alone, but alone by his soul, in life and in death, to my faithful, my faithful Savior Jesus, Jesus Christ, He has, has fully paid for all my sins with his precious, his precious blood, and has and set me free, free from the tyranny from the of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair. And what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. Amen. Let us stand and continue to sing before the throne of God above. be seated. And this God of love invites us to come into commune with him. Let us pray together the prayer our Lord taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. God, you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. We thank you for who you are, who you reveal yourself to be, that you long to commune with your people. You long, Father, for us to be in your presence. You invite us to come into your presence, to enjoy you and to glorify you, and it glorifies you by our communing with you. We thank you that you are our help, that you are our ever-present help, that you are our refuge. And, Lord, we pray this morning for things in our world. We ask, Father, that in our lives, in our own personal lives, whether it be physical, whether it be relational or financial, whatever the affliction or trial might be, that you would strengthen us. We thank you for the promise of the hymn we sang earlier that you will never forsake us. We think of our community, Father, and we pray, Father, for those in our community. We pray, Father, for the churches in our community and ask, Lord, that you would bless not only Lake Oconee Church, but that you would bless the church here at Lake Oconee. So, Lord, we lift up our friends over at Lakeside Baptist. We ask, Father, that you would be with them We thank you that we are part of your kingdom, unified brothers and sisters, and so we pray for them. We pray today, Father, for healthcare workers, medical personnel, all those who are working so hard, and we ask, Father, that you would have compassion upon them, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that we would be mindful to love them as we love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray for our new beginnings as we start again with the reopening of Sunday school and of nursery, of installing a new women's council, of having a visitor's lunch, of the start-up of grief share, of the election of officers and the installing of officers. And we pray, Father, that you would lead us by your Spirit, that we would be a Spirit-governed, Spirit-shaped, Spirit-led church and ministry. Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity in a few moments to together worship you in the hearing and preaching of your word and come to your table where you have taken down every barrier and invited us to fellowship with yourself, giving us this sign and seal of your covenant of grace with us. And Lord, we pray to celebrate that, that our hearts would be drawn and shaped by the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. May be seated. Well, we are returning this morning to our study of the book of Romans. We took a couple of months off as we went through uh, the fall and Advent season, but we are returning this morning. Uh, if Romans chapter four, one, chapters 1 to 4 was all about painting a foundation, a gospel vision, chapters 5 to 8 is what I'm calling gospel life. Now, you're going to have to bear with me this morning, and I'm glad none of my seminary professors uh, listened to our live stream to the best of my knowledge, because here we are returning, and so guess what I'm going to do? You're going to get an unbelievably long introduction this morning, because I don't want us to just see the individual trees. You know, when we turn to the Bible and interpret Scripture, here's one of the faults we often make. We tend to just pick verses, like cherry pick them, and we look at the tree, and they may be wonderful trees but we missed the forest. You know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going on a pastor's retreat with a few of my accountability partners really looking forward to it. We're going into the mountains of North Carolina. I hope, they're all younger guys than me. I hope I can keep up with them as we hike. But I'm looking forward to seeing all the trees in the forest. So when we enter Romans five through eight, guess what I'm going to encourage you to do? I'm going to encourage you to look at the forest and the big picture. And so, in chapters 1 through 4, that was Paul's exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it emphasized that God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. So, chapters 1 through 4 was about showing us revealing, unveiling, if you would, the righteousness of God that has been credited to us so that through faith in Christ, we are, not, we are now counted as in the right with God. That means before God, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are just as beautiful as Jesus is. Who needs New Year's resolutions when you are just as gorgeous as Jesus is? Do we, de- we may need healthier habits, I'm not denying that, but we don't need New Year's resolutions. You have the resolution of Jesus. And last I heard, he's pretty resolved, don't you think? I'll take his resolve over mine any day of the week. So before God, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are seen as perfect. Utterly amazing. And now we're going to move on to chapters 5 through 8. So, before we do, let me pray, bow with me in prayer, and then we will take a look at these opening verses. And no, the introduction is not finished. How's that? I gave it... See, if I was taking a preaching class, I would fail this morning. I just gave an introduction to the introduction. But yes, all of that is intentional. Let's pray together. What a privilege it is, Father, to open your word together as a family to hear your voice. I think of the promise that Jesus gave in John's gospel that the sheep hear my voice. And I pray that we would hear you in your word this morning. And I pray for our response. I pray for us to respond in worship and in faith and in love. And I ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn with me, if you have Bibles, Romans chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first five verses this morning. Of this pivotal chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, this is the Word of God. One commentator, his name's Thomas Schreiner, put it this way. He says in chapters 5 through 8, Paul argues that those who are right with God are the inheritors of the future promises made to Israel. Since these promises are theirs, the new people of God have an unshakable hope with confidence they can look forward to a renewed creation where there is no curse and nothing will or can be able to separate them from God's love. Did you hear that? Since these promises are theirs the new people of God have an unshakable hope. I heard a rumor that there's a big football game tomorrow night. Am I, am I mistaken there somewhere? Is OU playing somebody and I missed it? I could, I could really take this sermon off the rails and say this is a sermon on predestination because I thought in the fall, Georgia and Alabama are predestined to meet in the national championship game. I said to all my friends and buddies back in Oklahoma, I said, I said, don't sweat the Sooners. It's going to be Georgia and Alabama. Now, I have to admit it, even though I'm an OU fan, go dogs tomorrow night. Now, if you're for Alabama, I'm so sorry. But here's what made me think in terms of this. Each team and each fan base hopes their team will win. Am I right? I said to somebody before the service, I promise not to preach till 8 o'clock tomorrow night. We will be out before then. Why? Because we have a hope. We hope our team wins. Can I give you good news? Romans 5 through 8 is nothing like tomorrow night's game. Tomorrow night's game and the hope of the fans and the fan bases and the teams with that, I hate to tell you, It's not sure, and it's not guaranteed, and it's not secure. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and hope is what Romans 5 to 8, as a forest, is all about. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to put down. Romans 5 to 8, hope. And it's hope is an unshakable, unstoppable, guaranteed, secure, irrevocable hope. If you haven't figured it out already, that's why we sang the opening hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Though through fiery trials we all must go, God will not forsake us. See, Romans 5 through 8 is not like a sports game or a restaurant where we go, I hope I get a good meal. It's not uncertain. It's guaranteed. It's secure. It's unshakable. It's unstoppable. Again, if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you, let me give you a very quick outline of how to outline the entire book of Romans. See, people take eight years to preach through the book of Romans. I'm going to give you the entire book in about 30 seconds. Paul teaches that the summary of the Christian life, 1 Corinthians 13, right, is what? Faith, hope, and love. Okay? Here's one way you could outline the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 4 are all about faith. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. Chapters 5 through 8 are all about hope. Hope is what energizes the people of faith. And chapters 9 through 16 is the fruit of that faith and hope, a life of love. Paul said to Timothy when he was training and discipling his protege, Timothy, to take over for him that the aim of our charge, the fruit of our life in and with Christ under the power of the Spirit is love, love for God, love for God's people, love for the world. Thomas Schreiner, again, one of the foremost commentators on the book of Romans, says chapters 1 through 4 teach us that God has fulfilled his promises so that both Jews and Gentiles are now part of the one worldwide family of God. Whereas chapters 5 through 8 highlight the hope that belongs to those who are right with God. See, many say that Romans 5 belongs structurally with chapters 1 through 4, but I don't think so. I think linguistically, if you look at it, it's very prudent to include chapter 5 with chapters 6 through 8 rather than chapters 1 through 4. Because just to give you a little bit of hints, if you follow along with me in chapter 5 at verses 1, 11, and 21, Paul uses the phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ, or sometimes he might say, through Jesus Christ, our Lord And then each of the following chapters, 6, 7, and 8, the last verse of each chapter, chapter 6, verse 23, chapter 7, verse 25, and chapter 8, verse 39, also end with similar phrases. So in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then, as if climbing the pinnacle, the Mount Everest, the end of chapter 8, verse 39, he says, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think that phrase, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through God's Messiah, these chapters are all united and knit together. What he's doing here is if in chapters one through four, he talked about the great amazing doctrine of justification by faith, here he's speaking about the consequences of that justification. And in a nutshell, what Paul is saying is that the guaranteed certain future of glory, our hope, is what empowers our present Christian living. Now, how does Paul do this? How does Paul do this in these chapters? The commentator N.T. Wright puts it very well when he says, what Paul is doing is telling the story of the people of Jesus in terms of the new Exodus. Jesus' people are the liberated people on their way home to the promised land. Chapter 5, think about it. Jesus is the true and better Adam, reversing the curse of sin and death. Chapter 6 we are the new freed people. Chapter 6 is the exodus proper, so to speak. We're baptized into Christ Jesus. We've crossed the Red Sea, and we're the liberated people of God. Now, if you have the exodus story before you, what happens to the people of God as, after they cross the Red Sea? They come to Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai? They receive the law of God. God gives them through Moses the Ten Commandments. So, chapter 7, we deal with the whole issue of the law and how the law is a good thing, but the law is not what can bring us to our inheritance, to the promised land. Instead, we need the Spirit. The law may show up our sin. It exposes our sin. It shows us we need Jesus. So, it does a good thing. And chapter 8 is all about being led by the Spirit in the wilderness journey through the promised land. And so I want you to have before you, as we go through these chapters over these next several months, the paradigm, the picture of the Exodus. Because what is Paul doing? He's recapitulating that. And this theme, in an essence, look if you look with me at verse two, what does he say? Is the culmination of this? we rejoice in hope of the glory of God? This theme of sharing in Christ's glory dominates this whole section of the letter. Think about chapter 8, verse 30, where he says, those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified. Isn't that chapters 1 through 4? He also glorified. Now, biblical scholars, think with me, what's missing from that picture? Sanctification. The Christian life. Why? Because sanctification, our Christian life now, is the overflow. It is empowered. It is energized by the hope, the reality, the guarantee, the security of our glorification that we share in Christ's glory. So, in other words, the hope of glory ties this entire section together. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the way you handle your present is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. He says your future prospects determine how you live in the present. He Says a hope, a biblical hope is a future prospect. Something so great and so good that it makes it possible to face the hardship, face the difficulties. It makes it possible to face the hardship and to feel that everything you do is meaningful, not pointless. He gives the following illustration that I think paints a beautiful picture for us of what biblical hope can be like. He says, imagine two very different people that have the same job, and the job stinks. It's boring, bad working conditions, bad job, bad people, long hours, not too many benefits. But the first person is told that after one year, you get the whopping sum of $15,000. The second person is told, after one year, you will get $15 million. How do they react? The first one says, that's it, I'm done, I can't bear it. And the second one says, no problem, I can handle this, I can do this. They are completely controlled by their hope. Friends, that's the point of Romans 5 through 8. It's all about hope. And verse 5 says, hope does not put us to shame. In other words, we do not have to fear the final judgment because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured into our hearts. His love for us, that overflows in our love for Him. So you bore with me. That's the introduction. Let's look briefly at the first five verses where we are addressing the consequences of our justification in order to give us a hope and to empower and to energize how we live in the present. And we'll briefly look at three consequences, three things. First of all, the possession of peace. Second, the power of personal presence. And third, perspective in pain. Yeah, I got a little crazy on the peas this week. Possession of peace, power of personal presence, and perspective in pain in pain. Look with me at verse 1, where he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice it begins with the word therefore. In other words, it looks back to everything Paul has been saying in the previous chapters. He's saying, based on God's promises, all being yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. Building on what has gone before, in verses 1 through 2, he gives this very dense statement of a past event, justification by faith, the declaration, the legal declaration that we are altogether forgiven without guilt and loved, declared righteous by God, a present result, we have peace with God, an access into this grace in which we now stand, a status and a future promise, hope of the glory of God. Look at the first part, the possession of peace. Since we have been justified, since we have been forgiven, since we have been declared righteous, since God now sees us in, as in Christ, as just as beautiful as Jesus is, since he can now look upon us with a smile on his face, his demeanor toward us can be one of pure delight and love. Since all of this is bedrock truth, is an unshakable reality. We have, as an objective reality, peace with God. This is not something we're to strive for. This is not something we are to work towards. This is a gift that we're given because of our status in Christ. It's like Jesus promising to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The cessation of hostilities between us and God is a gift given by God because of the work of Jesus. It's ours to receive. It's ours to enter into. Makes me think of Paul's Letter to the Philippians where he told us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. God's very own peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, this is not just a stoic tranquility. Okay, this is not, I have God's peace. This is the cessation of hostilities. This is the fact that we are reconciled to God. We are one with God through Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice here that this possession, this reality, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Davidic king, the one who Isaiah referred to as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He is the one, and if you remember when we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, That peace we mentioned is shalom, or well-being. It's that sense of integrity, of being coherent, of being integrated, of wholeness. It is so much more than just tranquil feelings. It is a sense of being okay. Do you recognize that's what we all need? And that's what we're all striving for and fighting for, and we're given to it? given it by God, we just need that sense that we're okay. We need that sense that we don't have to work to validate ourselves, to prove ourselves, to vindicate ourselves. Do you know how how much we do to try to prove our worth? Do you know why we get defensive if somebody else criticizes us? Do you know why we get defensive if somebody says maybe... We came across a certain way or we impacted them a certain way. Why we get defensive and we tend to shout down other people, speak over them? Because underneath, underneath that, is that sense that we're not okay. That sense somehow I have to prove I'm right. My point is right. I can't be blamed. We're trying to prove we're okay rather than accepting the fact that God gives us our okayness as a gift. Therefore, since we are justified by God, we have peace with Christ. It's guaranteed. Friends, take a deep breath. You're okay. That's the first point. Next, look with me at verse 2 in the power of personal presence. He says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul said to the Ephesians, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, one worldwide family, have access in one spirit to the Father. He later said in Ephesians chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Paul is using a metaphor here when he, when he talks about we have, we have the status of grace. He says when he says, we've obtained access by faith into this grace. N.T. Wright says, I want you to picture grace here as a room into which Jesus has ushered all who believe, a room where they now stand, a place characterized by the presence and sustaining love of God. He says, just as the temple symbolized and actualized Israel's meeting with the gracious God, so now Jesus has effected such a meeting between this God and all who approach by faith. You know, Evie loves to watch the shows on HGTV, kind of those fixer-upper shows, the shows about remaking a house. Some of you might watch some of those TV shows that are on. And every now and then I'll peek in, because of course, you know, my favorite channel is ESPN. I tend to go there. But we tend to look at that, and usually they're taking whoever the homeowners are and taking them through this run-down house, and they have a vision, Right? for what their rooms are supposed to be supposed to look like and kind of how they're going to rebuild it and reframe it. See, if grace is being pictured here as a room, here's God's vision for that room, that you have access to. By faith in which we now stand, this is the room we're in with God. God's vision is one of union, communion, and friendship. This room of grace See, what he's doing now is he's moving us forward, and sometimes we get stuck. He's moving us from the legal in justification to the personal, from the legal to the personal. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Do you consider yourself a friend of God? Because He calls you His friend. This is, the, this is the room we stand in. This is the access we have. This is what grace is and does. We have friendship with the Holy God. He invites us in. He invites us to union and communion. With himself. Makes me think, what kind of friend are we to God? Do we cultivate intimacy with God? Do we cultivate friendship with God? What is your communication with him like? Do you listen to him? Is his the dominant voice in your life? God is interested in friendship with you and has given you access to him. Friends, this is the power of personal presence. And this is what sustains us as we move ahead to our next point, perspective and pain. See, of course, at this point, you've all heard me, and you're going, great, I love this. Peace, presence, friendship. When's the other shoe going to drop? Oh, here it comes. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. See, we still live in this world. and I'm going to take us back to the forest for a second. Remember we talked about if you're the new Exodus people, you're liberated from slavery to the wilderness, and we travel through the wilderness to the promised land. And yes, chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, what a glorious picture of our inheritance, of what is true now, of the promised land that we're journeying to. For I know that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, principalities or power, height nor depth, nor any, the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus? What does that in the power of the Holy Spirit empower us to do? As the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress goes, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. Let's remember when the people of God received the Torah at Mount Sinai, where were they led to? the wilderness where do we journey today we journey we're on our way to the promised land but we're journeying through the wilderness now i want you to notice a couple of things here as we go through this text notice what paul says he says not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings he does not say we rejoice for our sufferings god hates the pain that we go through he hates the injustice in the world. He's not calling us to rejoice for cancer and disease, death and injustice. He's calling us to rejoice in our sufferings. And how does he do that? Notice the wording of the text. But we rejoice in our sufferings. What's the very next word? Knowing. Knowing. that suffering does a specific work in us. And what does that work? It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. See, Paul is not wanting to just fill us with good information. Friends, we have to have a right picture of discipleship. And discipleship is not just knowing the right things. Now, before you throw tomatoes at me, do we have to know the right things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that is the beginning of discipleship, not the end of discipleship. Do you realize that the purpose of theology is for living? Theology isn't for theology's sake. Knowing is for living. Theology is for living. Right doctrine, if it doesn't lead to right practice, is not right doctrine. If right practice doesn't follow... I'm going to be point blank. We have wrong doctrine because right doctrine has to lead to right practice. And what is that right practice? It is to conform us to the image of Christ. Remember we said chapter 5 is about Jesus as the last Adam, the greater Adam. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the ideal human. And our Christian life is that of being conformed to Jesus's. What God is doing, the only why I can answer right now, why is God doing what he's doing in your life? Why is he, whether it's allowing suffering, bringing you blessings, whatever it is, why is he doing what he's doing? He's doing it to conform you to Christ. He is doing it for union and out of union with Christ. He wants to make our personalities reflect Christ's personality, and we're given Christ's personality. It's things like the Beatitudes, 1 Corinthians 13, the fruit of the Spirit. All of these things are Christ's personality, and that's what we are being conformed to. Tim Keller puts it this way. He describes what our perspective must be. He says, Paul does not say we rejoice for our sufferings because that would be masochism. And he writes, it actually is possible to rejoice for suffering. He says, some people need to feel punished in order to deal with their sense of unworthiness and guilt. Others actually get a superior attitude toward people who have had an easier life. They see them as superficial or ungrateful. He writes, it is possible to use suffering as a work, another form of justification by works. Some feel that God owes them his favor and acceptance because we have had such a hard life people who do not process their suffering through the gospel of grace can become proud, superior, or deeply cynical. He says Christians rather rejoice in suffering. That means there is no joy in the actual troubles themselves. God hates the pain and troubles of this life, and so should we. But rather, a Christian knows that suffering will have beneficial results. A Christian is not a stoic that faces suffering with just gritting of teeth. Christians look through the suffering to their certainties and rest in the knowledge that our troubles will only serve to increase our enjoyment and appreciation of them. Friends, these are just some of the consequences of the doctrine of justification by faith. This is when we talk about justification by faith and then we say, so what? This is the so what, the practical import it makes in our life, the difference is it, make, it makes in our life. Let me close with this question. Is this making a difference in your life, in your experience of peace? Are you more and more aware of the personal presence of God? And though we hate the pain that we see, that we have to go through, that our loved ones go through, that we see in the world is it renewing us in us a perspective in suffering and affliction let's pray father we thank you so much for the gospel of jesus christ that we could never ever truly plumb the depths of thank you for this text introducing this section as a whole teaching us that Because you have declared us in the right, you've given us a new objective status, that we are, that we have peace with you, that peace is our personal possession, that we have access into this grace in which we now stand, and that we can have a perspective in suffering that can actually be a witness to the world. So, Father, I pray that even now as we come to your table and as we celebrate this means of grace, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are a baptized believer and a part of any evangelical church, you are invited to come to this, the Lord's table. This is not my table, this is not Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church's table, this is the Lord's table, and it is a table marked with grace, it is a table marked with hospitality, it is a table for the family of God, which is why only if you know you're not a part of the family of God that I would encourage you to let the elements pass by. But as we meditated on the verse that through faith we have access into this grace, this gracious room in which we now stand. You know what I think is at the center of that room? Hospitality. God's welcome of us through Jesus Christ. God has torn down every barrier, every hindrance that could be there for fellowship between us and him. He's ripped it down, and he wants union and communion with his people. And this is one of the main ways that symbolizes that union. That we have a picture of Christ's body broken for us and a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. And it's not only a picture, but it's a seal. It glues, if you would, to our hearts the benefits, the peace, the presence, the perspective, some of the benefits of belonging to him. So, friends, I truly believe God wants you to come to his table. He's offering you a meal. He's reclining a table with you. He is here. This is his table. And I encourage us together, let's come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray together. Father, you've given us these normal elements, tangible things to remind us, to symbolize, and to seal to our hearts the glory of your covenant of grace with us. Renew our hearts. By this. Renew our lives as we partake of this together. Sanctify these elements for their holy use in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. the same manner, our Savior also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Thank you for your presence at this table. Lord, may we recognize and grow in what Jesus has done for us. May we live free, liberated lives for your glory as we travel through the wilderness, empowered by your Spirit, led by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let us stand and sing our closing hymn this morning when I survey the wondrous cross.